0: Welcome to North Park Community Church. My name is Joel, and I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm very excited to be here this morning to preach on this amazing passage on Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 3. We are in the second week of our sermon series that we've titled, as it says up here up on the screen, See That It Was Good, Genesis and the Story of the World. And that really is my goal here this morning as we walk through this text. I want us, by God's grace to see how good, how amazing God's creation was, and in many ways still is. Which means that I should mention this, that the goal of my sermon is not really, even though this can be in the front of our minds, the goal this morning is not to really dive into modern day discussions concerning science and religion, though I'm going to say some things about that in the sermon. And as I mentioned last week, we do have a class being offered in October, taught here by Dale Laird on different views concerning how to read Genesis and understand the age of the earth. But my goal here this morning is for us to see the glorious, amazing picture given to us in Genesis 1 of how good creation is, how remarkable of a gift it is, and that we would see that it is so good and so remarkable and so amazing that God himself made it this way so that he could actually come and dwell here. Okay, and so what that really means is, I hope this morning to show that our goal in all of life is actually not to get beyond this creation to something else, but to be here where God Himself would come and dwell with us. A lot of times we hold those against one another. I want to show you this morning how they come together in the initial picture given to us in Genesis 1. But let me pray first. I need God's help to do that, and then we can really dive into the text. So please, please pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gift, God, of creation, and I pray that right now, Lord, the power of your spirit, you would enable me, God, to preach and proclaim your word. Not for my sake, not for our sake, Father, but for the sake of actually us grasping how remarkable you are and how much of a gift this creation is. I pray, Lord, that your spirit would speak in such a way that we would see the goodness of this world, not as an end in and of itself, but as what you have created so that we could be with you. Or may you please speak now. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, now as we get started here, let me just briefly recap what we talked about last week because last week should really flow into what we are looking at today. So last week we looked at the first five verses of the book of Genesis, and what I sought to show you was that from the very beginning, we see that what we are being introduced to in this book is not just merely an account of our origins, but to an interpretation of universal history that claims to be the true story of the world. That the Bible claims from the very first word that we translate as in the beginning, that what is being told here in this book is the true account of the story of our entire world of which all of our lives can find meaning, purpose, and hope. But I also try to show you that what's so unique about this story, especially as you compare it to other rival accounts, is that its author is God alone. One, well, that there is an author, and that that author is God alone. God alone, by grace, chose to create the world intentionally. That unlike other creation accounts, the world did not come into being because rival gods were warring against one another, or because by some kind of random accident, the material world produced what we have today, completely by chance. But rather that there is one who is wholly other, who is so powerful from whom all things flow. And yet, even though he is wholly other and so powerful, he is chosen not only to create, but to relate to this creation. And this is why he spoke creation into being. Because speaking is a relational act. Thus he spoke because God chose from the very beginning to give himself to this creation, and all so that it would be good, so that he would see and we would see that it is good, because that's his desire. His desire is not just to have a creation, it's not just to give himself to creation, but to do so, so that it would be good. And that has not changed. It's why God became man. It's why he died on the cross for our sins, because from the beginning, God was graciously at work for us. He created the world in grace, gave himself to us in grace, and by grace, longed for this world to be good. Thus, when we rebelled and we sinned against him, and pain and suffering came into the world because of us, God, in grace, continued to be himself for us. And so by grace, the word, not only spoke creation, but the word became flesh, took on flesh to die for us and rise again for us. That, in extremely brief form, is the true story of the world. But what I saw to show last week was how this grace of God is not just something that popped up or showed up all of a sudden with the coming of Jesus, but that it was already present in the very foundation of our world. Okay, this week, I want to look at the rest of chapter 1 and a little bit of chapter 2. What we're going to try to do is to fill out our picture of the beginning of the story by not only seeing how good the author is, which really was last week, but also how good this creation is that God worked to make and, and how the two of them, both the author and the creation, are intricately connected to one another in this account. Okay, look for a moment with me at the conclusion of our text today, okay, which actually comes in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. So the conclusion of our text says this. So the creation of the heavens and the earth and everything in them was completed. On the seventh day, God had finished his work of creation, so he rested from all his work. And God blessed the seventh day and declared it holy, because it was the day when he rested from all his work of creation." A lot of times when we read through Genesis 1, we think that the creation of humanity is the climax of the account. But actually, those verses, those are the climax of the entire account of creation given to us in Genesis 1 through 2, 3. And they are remarkably important. Because what they mean is not merely that God ceased activity after he had created, but rather that God came to dwell, to settle, to rest in the creation among his people. This actually is what God resting really means. Rest is not just about work being done. It is about God's presence being manifested. Okay, so God is present everywhere, right? He's omnipresent. But to rest somewhere is for that presence to be manifested in a very specific, remarkable ways. It's about God dwelling somewhere. And the Israelites, to whom this was first written, they would have known this. Because that is what God did when they completed their work of building the tabernacle in the temple. Once their work was done, which interestingly with the tabernacle took seven days and with the temple took seven years, once that work was completed, the climactic moment of those accounts is when God came to settle, to dwell, to rest in them. This is why in Psalm 132, verses 7 through 8, which speaks of going to worship at the sanctuary, at God's temple, it says this, let us go to the sanctuary of the Lord. Let us worship at the footstool of his throne. Arise, O Lord, and enter your resting place, along with the ark, the symbol of your power, because that is what God's rest truly meant. It was about God's presence being made manifest. God coming to be with his people. But okay, what that means, and this is what the Israelites would have seen as they read through this creation account, is that the creation of the cosmos is God's creation of his temple to come and be with us, to come and dwell, to rest with his people. And this is really significant for a couple of reasons. Because on the one hand, what it means is that God dwelling in temples or in tabernacles, which was basically a portable temple, it was only, when only one could enter into it through sacrifices and stuff like that, that was not his original intention. Okay, God did that because of our sin, but that wasn't his original intention. No, his original intention was to dwell not just with the priest after sacrifices, but to dwell with us, with you. With all creation, his original intention was for the world to be filled with the glory of God as the waters cover the sea, so that this whole world would be as sacred and as holy as Israel's temple, so that all of us, not just the priests, but all of us would enjoy the most intimate, gracious, amazing communion with God. But it also means then that the goal of our lives, the goal of each of our lives Really, the story of the world is about us being with God in this physical world. It means that from the very setting of the story, the ultimate hope was not to escape this world and to get to heaven, but rather for heaven and earth to be joined as one, for God, who is spirit, to dwell with us here in this physical world. This is why in Colossians, okay, if you remember this, we went through Colossians over the summer, it said that God made peace with everything in heaven and on earth through the blood of Christ because Jesus did not just save us from our sins though thank God that he did, but his work was actually large enough to restore this entire creation to what it is meant to be so that one day we would have new bodies in a new heavens and a new earth where God himself would dwell with us and we with him. And you see, this is something I think that we often miss. We actually often, I think, unwittingly live by other rival stories in which the spiritual and the physical are like pitted against one another, where there's this extreme dualism and one is better than the other. What I mean is that some of us live as if the goal of our lives is to transcend this world, that the really real is not the physical, not our bodies, but like our feelings or some spiritual experience or our souls. And in the church, this takes the form of the good news of Jesus being reduced to only about our spiritual lives, to only about the salvation of our souls. And so we neglect the fact that Jesus came healing people physically. We neglect that he was raised bodily, and that the ultimate hope is to also be raised bodily with him and the rest of creation. And instead we live thinking that the end goal of the universe is for this physical world to be gone, and us to be in a purely spiritual existence which manifests itself then in different ways in our lives. Because if you think that way, it can become really hard to truly care about the physical world or even to enjoy it. You end up kind of having little concern for the earth, for the environment, for social issues like poverty and famine, for institutions and how they function, and you aren't truly able to enjoy the gift and beauty of the world as God intended it, or try to even imitate it and expand that beauty through something like art because we have this deep-seated assumption that we need to kind of get beyond this world. And so even if we do care about what someone is physically going through, we say, oh, that matters. But what really matters is the spiritual, and we kind of place it on this interesting hierarchy. That's why we probably care a little bit. We don't fully care and often even contribute to it. But for others, we do the opposite. We also pit physical and spiritual against one another, but we don't live as if the spiritual is more important. Instead, we live as if the physical is all that there is. And this manifests itself either through us living as if pleasure or enjoying this physical world is what life is all about, thus we end up exploiting the earth and others for our own pleasure. Or, I think really interestingly, we live trying to cling to the physical constantly, whether that be maintaining our own beauty and never letting it go because this is all that we have, or trying to force people to constantly preserve everything about this earth because we have to have it for the next generation because that's all that there is. But in the true story of the world, we are not trying to escape this physical existence, but neither is this physical world all that there is. Instead, the goal is to be with God here. And it's why God made this world in the way that he did. It's why he made it so good. And so what I want to do with the rest of our time is I want us to really look at how good and remarkable this creation really is. I want us to see what is it that makes this so good? What is God seeing that makes him see that it is good so that we can also know then how should we change our lives and how should we worship God because of what he has done? And the first thing I want us to notice about God's creation is that as this account shows us, God's creation is remarkably intentional. It is extremely ordered and structured. Okay, so it says in verse two that the earth was formless and empty. All right, so it begins to saying, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was formless and empty. And what that means is that before God started speaking light and space and land and animals and humans into existence, before all that, The world was a shapeless and barren place. But then God started speaking and separating and naming things. But I want us to notice here that the way that he does it is in an ordered way or in an intentional way so that he would both form and fill it. And the forming happens on day one through three and the filling on day four through six and all in a way where the days parallel one another. Okay, so I'll show you this in a slide in a moment, but let me just kind of walk through the days here. So on day one, he said, let there be light and separated the light from the dark and called the light day and the dark night. On day two, he said, let there be space between the waters to separate the waters of the heavens from the waters of the earth. And then he called the space sky. So he created space and waters there. On day three, he said, let the waters flow together so that dry ground may appear. Let them sprout vegetation and plants and seeds. Thus on day one through three, he formed the world. He gave it its shape. But now, notice what happens on day four through six. Okay, on day four, he says, Let great lights appear in the sky to separate the day from the night. Let them mark off the seasons, days, and years. Thus, he filled the sky with the sun and the moon and the stars. And in a way that parallels day one, day one, light and darkness. Day four, the sun, the moon, and the stars. On day five, he says, let the waters swarm with fish and other life and let the skies be filled with the birds of every kind. So he filled the waters and the sky with the fish and the birds, which parallels day two. Then on day six, he says, let the earth produce every sort of animal, each producing offspring of of the same kind, livestock, small animals and wild animals, and let us make human beings in our image. Thus on day six, he filled the dry land. Day one through three, God intentionally formed the world, and then they fourth through six, and in a parallel way, we'll show the slide now, God filled the world. The entire time, he was doing it in an ordered way, and so that it would parallel one another. Because it's not just that he created the world, he didn't just have like a checklist and say, okay, we need, we need land, and we need some animals, and then we need some fish. And he's not just going down it, he's placing it, putting it together. He is intentionally ordering it and structuring it. And he did it all so that it would function so that it would work so that it would actually provide for itself and provide for us this is why you don't just have a description of the creation of things in this chapter but you also have a description of their function and how they will self-perpetuate okay verse 11 and 12 it's so interesting it's like you're going through it's so beautiful and then it almost it goes into this odd detail so let me just read verse 11 and 12. then god said let the land sprout with vegetation every sort of seed-bearing plant and trees that grow seed-bearing fruit. These seeds would then produce the kinds of plants and trees from which they came. And that is what happened. The land produced vegetation, all sorts of seed-bearing plants and trees with seed-bearing fruit. Their seeds produced plants and trees of the same kind and God saw that it was good. It does isn't just explain that God made plants and made trees. He explained how he did it so that they actually would keep going. And why did he do that? Well, if you then go to verses 29 to 30, it's so that we would be fed and the animals would be fed. God is putting it in place so that we'd be provided for and it would perpetuate. This happens again in verse 14. God creates the sun and the moon and the stars. But he explains that their reason for being there is to rule the day and the night into mark off seasons and days and years. He's providing for us and how we can even structure time. And in verses 26 through 28, God makes humanity in his image, and he does so, and we will talk way more about this in the coming weeks, but he does so for the sake of us caring for and ruling over the world. Because what you see in each of these things is that God is not just speaking plants or stars or animals into existence. He is intentionally structuring them for a purpose so that this world would continue to work as he desired it, and so that we and he could dwell in his good creation. Yes, the world, this temple that God created for the sake of us dwelling, of him dwelling with us, he created it in a way that was remarkably intentional, incredibly ordered and structured so that it might function. And we need to make a couple of points here about what this means. Because, okay, as we talked about last week, in rival origin stories, the world is created by chance or Randomly. This is true not only in rival origin stories that were circulated in the ancient world, but also in our world today. The modern scientific theory concerning the origins of our world, while it certainly claims that the world is very rational in how it functions, it also claims that its origins are completely by chance. But that's not the true story. God intentionally created and ordered the world. It does not just happen to be rational. It is rational because God created it that way. But what's really interesting to note about that is that historically, if you look at where modern science came from, it was completely birthed out of Christianity. Okay, seriously, it was. I'm not just making this up. There is not actually a conflict between science and faith in God. Because listen, for modern science to function, what it has to believe, to assume is true, is that the universe is rational. Scientists all work with that assumption, with that belief that the world in which we live is rational. This is why if a scientist is performing an experiment and the results that they find through their experiment are random or are not rational, they will immediately believe that they made a mistake with the experiment because they believe in the rationality of the universe so deeply that anything that seems to point in the opposite direction is assumed to be wrong. But okay, historically, Where did that belief originate? Where did that come from? Why did people start believing that the world was so rational that if you tested it and observed it, you would get rational and consistent results And the way that we have it today, the way we think about it today? Where did it come from? Christianity. It came from the witness of Scripture. This is why Alvin Plantinga, who's the John A. O'Brien professor of philosophy, emeritus at Notre Dame, says in his book, Where the Conflict Really Lies... He says that modern Western empirical science originated and flourished in the bosom of Christian theism and originated nowhere else. And he can even go on to quote the physicist C.F. von Weinsacker, say that in this sense, I call modern science a legacy of Christianity. Because modern science is working with the, from a premise that our world only started believing was true because of the claims of the scriptures. That this world in which we live is so intentionally ordered and structured that you could test it and observe it. It was made to function in a rational way. This is why the great scientists of the past were Christians. Galileo, Kepler, Newton. They all had a deep belief in God. And you can say this for many scientists today as well, so much so that the man who was the head of the Human Genome Project, Francis Collins, he is a deeply devout Christian man. Which is why even though our world has moved to a time where many scientists don't believe in God at all, they can't really explain how our world could be made by chance and yet be this rational. So there's a physicist named Fred Hoyle who once said that the idea that life emerged spontaneously on earth and developed to be what we have today is about as likely as a tornado going through a junkyard and assembling by itself a Boeing 747 through what is in the junkyard. But that is the claim of many scientists. But okay, what I want us to notice here is that our response to this as Christians should not be to reject scientific endeavors. We, of course, can disagree with some of the conclusions or some of the claims, like the world being created by chance, but we do not disagree at all with the foundational premise of science, that the world is rational. And because of that, because our God made the world and structured it in such an ordered way, we should actually encourage and support those who study the order and rationality of the universe. Their, their discoveries, guys. They should cause us to worship. I mean, think about it. How much more today, because of the scientific discoveries in the last hundreds of years, how much more should we be able to say... The heavens proclaim the glory of God. How much more can we join our voices with Psalm 139 and say, I, you, we are fearfully and wonderfully made. Or say with Psalm 8, when I look at the night sky and see the work of your fingers, which we can do today in ways no one else has ever been able to do before. We can look at the night sky, see the work of his hands. How much more can we say, what are we? What are mere mortals and human beings that you would care for them when this is how glorious the galaxy is? See, the discoveries of science should cause us to proclaim and exalt in the God who made the world in an ordered and structured way because that is good. And it's what the world was meant to be so that we could dwell with our God here. Okay, that brings me to another point that I want to make about the order and structure of the world and how God put it all together so that it would function. And it's that not only should this remind us of how a part of creation we of humans are. Like we are dependent on creation. God made us that way. But it should also remind us of how much of a gift creation is. Because this shows us that seeing God's creation temple is not just about God being in a physical place. It is about God being in a physical place with you. He made the world in this way in which we would be sustained and cared for, not because he needed it. He doesn't, but because he wants to be here with you. This is how much he loves us. He created the physical world in such a way that we could live here with him. Guys, creation is a grace. It is a gift that God made so that he could be with others, so that he could dwell with, so we could dwell with one another and with him. He created it so ordered and so structured, so that we'd be provided for, that we would have all we need, and that we would actually care for it. And recognizing that should cut across the idea that life is either about transcending this world to get to the spiritual realm, so they don't really care about creation, or where life is all about the physical world so that creation is all that we have. Neither of those things are true. Yes, God is the ultimate goal. Dwelling with him, being with him, Communion with him. He is the greatest gift we could ever have. For he is love itself. And so being with him is to be wrapped up in the overwhelming and never-ending grace, peace, and love of the God of the universe from which those things flow. But that will only fully take place in this world. Yes, when we die, we go to be with him in heaven. But our full hope is to actually have a body again with him when this world is restored to what it's meant to be. You see, this is why Jesus came. And it's why he came healing the sick, feeding the poor, and commanding the seas to be stilled. It's why he did not only come to forgive sins, though thank God that he did, but to conquer death and to destroy the disorder of our world and to rise again physically in a physical body and said that one day we too and this whole creation will rise again and be restored with him because through Jesus Christ, God is restoring this world to what was meant to be, where sin, where sickness, where death, where decay, where poverty, wars, natural disasters, and the disorder that we see all around us, where those things are gone forever. He is remaking this world so that once again, it would be ordered and structured and function as God always intended it, so that he would dwell with us. Okay, as we look forward to that day, the church is called in the here and the now to participate with God in that mission. Not in a kind of absolute sense as if we can literally make things right in the way that God can, but we are called to embody what Jesus has already done and is bringing. And that means we are called to, yes, proclaim the hope of Jesus Christ, but also to practice the way of the living Christ. Thus we are called to point people to the hope of Jesus' forgiveness and restoration of all things, but also not just to speak that, but to embody it in the here and now. And thus we should deeply care about the order and structure of our world. We should care for this world, for the environment, for those who are in need around us, but also for the institutions and how they function. We should care about the physical well-being of our neighbors, the decay of the earth, institutional corruption and disorder, and we should seek, where possible, to restore them. In fact, we should see, and again, this is something we'll talk way more about in the coming weeks, but we should see that the mission of the church is not just carried out by pastors and ministry leaders, but by all of you who work in the world. For you encounter constantly the disorder on a daily basis And bringing structure and order to those places is something God deeply cares about. But not because the world is ultimate, because it is the gift that God gave to us, ordered and structured for us, so that we could be with him. Okay, it's not just that God made this temple, this creation in an order way that I want us to notice here. It is also that he made it in a remarkably diverse and beautiful way. You say, okay, did you notice Well, Matt was reading through this text, How many times it says the words, all and every, that it says things like, God made every sort of seed-bearing plant and trees, that he made not just the sun and the moon, but also the stars, that he filled the skies with birds of every kind and created great sea creatures and every living thing that scurries and swarms in the water and every sort of animal. Okay, why does the text do that? It's a little redundant, don't you think? Like when God's like, let there be animals, it should be like, that implies all of them. Why tell us all and every each time? Well, I want to answer that by reading a quote from the book Biblical Critical Theory by Christopher Watkin. Not Christopher Watkin, though that would be pretty amazing. But it's not Christopher Watkin. Christopher Watkin, and he asked that same question. He's is actually the first person that, that pointed this out to me. He says, okay, why all, the, all and every? Why is this in this text? And this is what he says in response. The answer, and what a wonderful answer it is, is that God has not created a world with just enough sustenance, variety, and abundance for survival. But God created a super abundant world fit to foster the flourishing of his creatures. He has not limited supply to the level of demand. Why have one or even 1,000 species when you can have an estimated 8.7 million? Why just eat to survive and have sex to procreate when you can experience great enjoyment at the same time? Why create a monochrome or a colorless world if you can make a human eye that can distinguish between 7 and 10 million colors? And stars don't even go there. Astronomers estimate that there are around 300 billion stars in our Milky Way galaxy alone and perhaps 2 trillion galaxies. Now I ask you, what's the point of that? What a waste, what a delight. You see, what Walken is showing us here is that the reason why the text keeps emphasizing the all and the every is that this temple that God made, this world that he made to dwell in with us was not just made in an ordered or structure or just kind of a utilitarian way so that God would be here. It was made absolutely exploding and teeming with beauty and wonder and delight and joy. It was made to function, yes, but it was made to shock us with awe as to what he would give to us. Yes, it works rationally so that every single human has to eat to survive, but why didn't God just make like one plant and that was it and we just picked it off, took it It was like elven bread. You like took a bite and you're full for like a while. Why did he make the variety that he did and the spices that you could put together so that your mouth would just be exploding so that food is not just a necessity, It is a delight that we gather around to enjoy each other's company. Yes, it's ordered so that, okay, there's water and there's land, and so we live on one and we drink the other. But why do we have mountains and valleys and plains and deserts? Why can you stand staring at a sunset and be brought to tears by what God has brought there? And other nights, it's just foggy and you can't see, and so you're crying for a different reason. Like, where is the sunset? Why do we have rivers and lakes and oceans and swamps? Why do we have falcons and robins, blue jays and eagles, kangaroos, ants, cheetahs and elephants, lions and tigers or bears, oh my. Moons and asteroids, sunsets, foggy days, whales, eels, bass, orca, Amazon river dolphins, common bottlenose dolphins, spinner dolphins, short beak dolphins. Why do we have ducks, loons, Horses and cows, deer, dogs, cats—really, I mean, honestly, why cats? Why? Why do we have all of this? Why do we have the diversity of people that we do in the world? Because God loves beauty. Because He loves diversity. Because He not only wants the world ordered and structured, He created a world that would reflect His glory. And so, to quote again, Christopher Walken, he says this: "God made." a riotous universe of fabulous functionality and superabundant systematicity, a perfect marriage between a tie-dye bohemian artist and a round, spectacle, besuited mathematician. Now, you see, that's part of the point I want to make here. Because if God's ordering of the world means that we should care about this world and its function and should work in all areas of life to see it structured the way God for it longs for it to be, then the rich beauty of this creation means that we should actively seek to see the world constantly reflect this beauty. We should deeply care about artists who are able to bring out beauty, and we should want them to do their work. And we should actively seek to, like God, stop and rest, and to enjoy the work of his hands. I really think this is so important. God did not just create a utilitarian world. He created the greatest work of art for him and us to enjoy In our industrial age, we've often destroyed this. We have made life all about productivity. And in so doing, we've lost so much of the diversity and beauty of our world. And for some bizarre reasons, I feel like Christians in the West have often acted as if this really doesn't matter that much. But it does. God created the world teeming with wonders and maintaining that and even adding to it and contributing to it through art. That is part of our call as his image bearers. But I also want to say, so is actively seeking to enjoy it. What I mean is that as we work in the world, we should do so like God. That means we should actually not just keep going and constantly laboring and constantly just moving, but we should all stop. We should all cease. We should all rest, be present to enjoy the work of his hands and the beauty he created by him and of his image bearers. Because that's what God did. He worked to create, to order, and to beautify this world, but not just for the sake of labor, but to rest and to dwell with us in this glorious place. You see, that's the ultimate goal. It's why he made the world not merely for its own sake or even just for his own sake, but for us to be with him. And he longs for that so much that even though we have messed this up, even though we introduced sin into this world and so we brought disorder and we destroyed so much of the world's beauty, even though we through our efforts are incapable of reversing what we have done, God in his mercy, in his grace, sent his son to die on a cross for our sins, to rise again for our hope and to promise that one day this world's order will be fully restored. One day, this world's beauty will far surpass anything that it's been before. For one day, we will again dwell with him in new heavens and a new earth. And because of that, as we seek to join God now in his mission of restoration, we should do so being able to rest and be able to enjoy the gift of God's creation because ultimately, it's by his grace. He's invited us to join him but told us to trust him and to look forward to that hope. And so may you know this morning that God longs to be with you, that he gave his son so you could be with him here. But may you also know that because of that hope, we can work with him while resting and enjoying this good creation at the same time. Amen, let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you, Father, that the heavens proclaim your glory. And Father, as we conclude our service, May we just know how deeply amazing you are because of that. I pray for my brothers and sisters in here, Father, that they would feel empowered, God, to live for you in this world. And then it matters because your son came to die for them and for this world. May they know your love. May we be able to worship you today, but not just here. But maybe we go out out of these doors after this service, Father, to worship you throughout the week. Father, you are so great. May our souls... Bodies, minds, everything that we are. May we cry out how great you are because of what you have done for us. In Jesus' name, amen.